You're listening to Wiretap with Jonathan Goldstein on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius Satellite Radio 137. Today's episode, The Wolf Boy, The Monkey Boy, and The Daddy's Boy. Two years before we met and fell in love, Pierre-Lou was discovered in the north of Quebec, half naked and covered in filth. It was the newspapers that nicknamed him Pierre-Lou, a name he told me he could never stand. At the time of his discovery, his identity was confirmed as that of Pierre Normand, who had gone missing from a campsite 18 years earlier. Everyone thought the little Normand boy had long been murdered or had starved to death, but this was not the case. Pierre had been living among the wolves. Sightings of the legendary wolf boy had been common in the north of Quebec for years. There's Pierre Lou, high school boys would tell their girls pointing into the woods, and the girls would clutch them tighter. People would occasionally claim to have seen a naked little boy running out of their yards with strangled chickens in his hands while laughing. At the age of seven, the wolves found him red rubber boots, a pair of shorts, and a brown sweater in a garbage dump. As a clothed little boy, Pierre Lou was able to venture into parks and supermarkets and steal whole barbecue chickens to bring back to the pack. The wolves had never eaten so well in their lives, and in this way, Pierre and the wolves lived their lives happily, with Pierre becoming a valued member of the pack. But then at 18, Pierre-Lou was apprehended running out of a supermarket with an armful of raw hamburger meat as a pack of wolves lay waiting in the parking lot. Unhand me, varmints, cursed Pierre-Lou. In the hours that followed, the world learned of Pierre-Lou's history. Sociologists and linguists rushed to meet him in the hotel where he was sequestered to learn how a feral child could speak so well. Pierre-Lou told them he had learned English by overhearing it as he rooted through garbage cans behind people's houses and reading the labels on beef jerky wrappers. I've always been a fast learner, he said, the only one in our pack who could peel an orange. The authorities made an attempt to contact his parents, but as it turned out, the grief over his childhood disappearance had driven them both to despair, and five years earlier, after coming home from an evening out with friends, they had sealed up the windows, laid themselves down in bed, and turned on the gas. And so, Pierre-Lou was left without a human soul in the world. Pierre was unexpectedly charming. Not at all what you would expect from a feral child. And people couldn't get enough of him. He did the talk show circuit, regaling interviewers with stories about his wolf family. I had one cousin who was always trying to pass himself off as some sort of lone wolf. But then around mealtime, he'd always creep back. When asked if he'd ever felt like an outsider among the wolves, he sneered. Why would I? I am a wolf. And he did vaguely resemble one. His mouth was huge like Mick Jagger's and his face almost seemed to split in two when he smiled. Only 23, his messy black hair was going prematurely gray and from out of it, his huge ears stuck out, accentuating how narrow his face was. Didn't you ever feel there was something different about you while growing up? 
Barbara Walters asked. Well, my mother did lavish an inordinate amount of attention on me, he said. I did mention the red boots I was given, did I not? You could see Barbara Walters looking a little flustered. Seeing that he had missed her point, she continued. You must miss your dead parents terribly. She said this with her trademark, empathetic squint, the look that cues her producers to zoom in for the guests' tears. But Pierre-Lou was nonplussed. My wolf family is my only family, he said resolutely. And rather than crying, he pulled out a beef jerky from his pocket and sucked on it contentedly. Pierre-Lou continued to perplex and surprise many more hosts on many more TV shows. When it was time to walk on stage for the Oprah show, he was so excited that he ran out on all fours and collided into the couch, knocking over most of the set and scaring Oprah very badly. To make matters worse, during the commercial break, he relieved himself in a rubber tree plant beside his armchair. And then, back from the break... He pulled out a goldfish from a Ziploc bag and poured it into his bottle of beer. He called it his protein shake. In spite of his shenanigans, Pierre-Lou was TV magic. He was recruited by a touring agency that booked him on a speaking tour of Europe, where he became as beloved a North American export as Jerry Lewis in Twinkies. He was a particular hit with the French intelligentsia, who wrote essays about him, holding him up as a symbol of our primordial spirit and all that we have lost. Also, they loved when he performed the Marseillaise and begged him to howl it every chance they got. Pierre-Lou became notorious for being thrown out of a hotel for swimming naked in the pool, peeing off a balcony, eating tropical fish out of an aquarium, and murdering a guest's Pekingese. He befriended a stray German shepherd with a missing eye and a broken tail from the pound, and together they toured around France, the two of them riding first class and drinking champagne. The French media began to call him a poet maudit. These were very good times for Pierre-Lou. He enjoyed seeing the world and seemed to thrive on all the attention. Because of his popularity, feral children became all the rage in Europe. And so, to draw even bigger crowds, the tour organizers decided to pair Pierre-Lou with Georges Le Curieux. While on an Indian safari with his parents, Georges had fallen from a jeep and subsequently had been raised by macaque monkeys. A new poster was hastily prepared in which Georges was shown laughing with a banana peel on his head as Pierre-Lou stood beside him, scowling with a dead rabbit in his mouth. From the very first moment that Pierre met him, he hated Georges Lequilla's guts. The two feral children were complete opposites. Whereas Pierre was aloof and imposing, Georges was always trying to put everyone he met at their ease. In fact, when they first met, Georges was riding a tricycle around and around in circles. He handed Pierre a red balloon that Pierre quickly popped on his thumbnail. Georges had been mentored by a showbiz chimpanzee who had done a lot of film work. He had instructed Georges in what he believed impressed humans the most. Georges could barely even talk. But being so desperate for love, 
He would roll his lips under his gums, puff his cigar, and smilingly wait to be applauded. And when he was, he would tip his pink and purple party hat. Pierre-Lou was sickened by Georges' complete lack of dignity. When Georges clumsily tap-danced to tea for two, Pierre would bite his knuckle until it bled. I refuse to tour with that imbecile, said Pierre-Lou to the tour manager. We can filter that aggression back into the act, the manager assured him. Maybe start each show with a fake sword fight. Monkey versus wolf. Pierre-Lou wanted to quit on the spot, but the truth was that he had developed quite a taste for expensive wine and fine clothing. In fact, when asked by reporters if he still felt the call of the wild, he said, Not really. It's just too bloody difficult, he said, being hungry all the time. For Pierre Lou, the bottom finally fell out at the now infamous lecture that he and Georges gave at the École Normale Supérieure. It seems some of the professors wished to challenge Pierre's assertion that he was in fact a wolf. You don't have a tail, monsieur, Professor Montpetit exclaimed. How dare you, Pierre Lou retorted. My brother had his tail cut off in a mink trap. Does that make him any less of a wolf? If a man loses a leg in the war, is he not still a man? But you can speak several languages, monsieur. Professor Delanel yelled. Wolf is my mother tongue, and even you, sir, will concede that it is superior to English. All the French philosophers chuckled at that one, but still they were not rebuffed. What wolf would wear Yves Saint Laurent suits and a diamond pinky ring? Calmly and rather menacingly, Pierre-Lou explained that, despite appearances, a wolf could never be domesticated. Because, he argued, if you offer a wolf a milk bone, the wolf will bite off the entire hand. The milk bone, he said, would just be the cherry on the cake. The audience looked skeptical, and Georges Le Carrier twisted nervously on his tricycle seat. I am a wolf, Pierre Lou said, pounding the lectern. But still, a trace of uncertainty had crept into his voice. Just the same... He continued, I am an outlaw, a metaphor for death and destruction. You humans are programmed to be instinctively terrified of me. There can never be any true love between our species. With these final words, he walked past the podium, over to the edge of the stage, and glared into the audience. Everyone felt the hairs on the back of their necks stand up. With shaky hands, the philosophers lit up their galois. There were no further questions. In the silence that ensued, Georges Le Curieux grew uneasy, and so to diffuse the tension, he began to pull on the suspenders attached to his diapers. As he did so, he blew into a slide whistle. Pierre-Lou focused his rage onto the poor monkey boy. You are not an animal, Pierre-Lou yelled at Georges. If you were a real monkey, you would be throwing your feces at this crowd. You'd be pounding your chest and making war cries. You are a man imitating a monkey, imitating a man. 
The philosophers liked that line a great deal. Some of them even jotted it down in their notebooks for use as a possible title for a later treatise on postmodernity. No longer able to bear the spectacle of it all, Pierre-Lou leapt at Georges and almost bit off the ear of the security guard, who tried in vain to pull him off. After that event, Pierre-Lou was judged uninsurable. He returned to Canada, depressed, lonely, and detoxing from expensive French champagne. He continued to search for his wolf family in the north and finally discovered, to his dismay, that a lot of them had been captured and put in a Montreal zoo. He went there every day, gripping the bars of their cage and swearing to get them out as soon as possible. He just needed to find a big enough apartment for them all to live in. He described how beautiful St. Denis Street was, and he assured them they would all be strutting down it soon. It was there at the zoo, squatting beside the wolf cage, that I first saw Pierre Lou. There was something about the way he was whispering so tenderly between the bars, the way the wolves were gathered all around him, that attracted me right away. I was never the love at first sight type, and yet what I experienced that day was unlike anything I'd ever felt for a man I'd only just met. They better be treating you guys well, he said, or they'll be hearing from me. It was an incredibly odd thing to be saying to wolves, but I lived in a bohemian neighborhood and so I just figured he was a poet. When he turned and saw me staring, he smiled, and I recognized that smile from countless newspaper articles and TV appearances. He bared all his teeth and tilted his face downwards while looking at me. He kept this expression frozen on his face as he made his way over. Yes, I am the infamous Pierre Lou, he said, and you are an absolute vision in that little red coat of yours. The moment I saw you, I said, why that girl's so cute, I could eat her up. He threw his head back and laughed. That first night we spent together, there was a full moon out. He said he couldn't stay in on a night when the moon was full. We went to the social club down the street from my house and danced all night. It seemed that no one had ever taken poor Pierre dancing. He rolled around on the dance floor in delight, overturning chairs and tables until we were finally thrown out. At the end of the night, he carried me up the stairs of my apartment building and onto the roof. He tried to get me to howl at the moon with him, but when I tried, I only ended up giggling. And once my giggles had faded to silence, very slowly, he leaned in and we kissed. It was Pierre Lou's first kiss ever, and it was so sweet, so small and yet filled with so much promise. It was the kind of kiss little boys made when they kissed their mirrors alone late at night and dreamed of being men one day.
Danny. Oh, Jonathan? Yeah, I'm sitting in the studio waiting for you for the past half hour. Yeah, but... You, you're supposed to be here to record my monologue. You're not going to believe what I'm doing right now. What are you doing right now? What I'm doing for you right now is a surprise. Well, Danny, that's well and good, you know, but th th that's secondary to being here on time. Yeah, but when I get there, I will have made you, I, I wasn't going to give it away, a shepherd's pie. Okay, Danny? Yeah? Number one, I don't eat meat. Okay, that's number one. Okay, we can pick it out. Okay, number two, I'd rather be recording my monologue right now than eating a shepherd's pie. Hey, I applied for an internship. I'm willing to pick out meat. Danny, listen to me, okay? Don't bother coming in. This is, I think, what sets me apart from other interns that you've had. You know, I'm the person who's going to come in, even though you're saying, I, I don't need you to come in right now, Danny. But you're not going to come in. I don't want you to come in. But that's where you're wrong. I am going to no, come in. Danny, See? that... And you'll that, be surprised. No, I'll be very upset if you come in. I don't want you to come in. No, I, I can come in, you know, because I've got all this stuff. Okay, I'm getting call I'm waiting. I'm I have to take I'm this. I won't... Hello? Hi, Johnny. It's hey, Dad. Hey, Dad. Hey, listen, um, can you just hang on? Yeah, I just got a little question I want to ask you. Sure, sure, you know, sure. I just have someone on the other yeah, line. I put the, the, uh, the microwave on, yeah. and I realize there's no food in the microwave. So I'm wondering, do you think that it might have caused some kind of radiation throughout the house? No. Food? Just hang are on you, one second. Are you sure? I, I, I am, but ha yeah. hang, on, hang on one second, Dad. I'm on it. I won't. I will Danny. not be there. I'll tell you this. Danny, you're I fired. I won't be there okay. until all the meat is out of this thing. Don't come in. I, Hello. I feel much better after what you told me with the microwave. You know, that's so what's great. up? That's How you doing? I'm, 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 yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm okay. You don't sound okay, Johnny. You sound kind of stressed. What's the matter? Well, I, uh, I'm having some intern-related problems. What I, kind of uh, problems? I go through a lot of interns. I'm just yeah. having a hard time finding a good intern. Uh, yeah, that's the way it is today. Kids aren't reliable. They, 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 they don't want to work hard. Yeah. Listen, I always worked. Most yeah. of my life, you know, it's not like the kids today. I worked since I was 12. I lugged around ice cream boxes for good humor on the beach at 15 cents on a dollar. And believe me, we had to sweat. And I had to take salt pills for that. What, do you t what, is, what does that mean? If you sweat a lot, you, you lose a lot of salt. Uh -huh. So you take a pill to make up for the salt you lost. Do people still do that nowadays? I don't know, but I know in my days they did. Uh, anyway, I mean, the thing with these young interns that I'm getting nowadays, I mean, they don't have to worry about sweating at all. Uh, they don't worry about anything, Johnny. You know, I just can't get any good help. And, yeah, uh, it's... you know, Johnny, I got a brainstorm. Uh-huh. I was thinking maybe I could help you out. Of being, of, uh, of... I'm reliable. Right, but you're retired. So what? I'm helping my son out. I, that's that's really nice of you, Dad. But um, yeah, but uh, I'm ready to go. You're gonna you, you're being serious. You 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 would you would be my intern. Of course, why not? Well, for one thing, I mean, you're you're my father. Right. Who would be a better intern or assistant but your father? I know you. Right. You don't have to go through any great acrobatics or gyrations to tell me what you want me to do. Yeah. We have what you call the unspoken language. You know what I mean? No. I even know what you're thinking right this second. What am I thinking? I'm too proud to ask my dad to help me out. Uh-huh. Am I right or am I right? Dad, 
really, I'm I'm really touched that you know that you would help, want to help me out in this way. I just it just I don't know if it's such a great idea. What do you mean? It's the best. Yeah. I'm gonna come in with a shirt and tie and a jacket. Y- you don't need to do that. I mean, you wouldn't need to. do I'm gonna show you all the respect. I'm gonna call you, Mr. Goldstein. N- well, that's that? being a bit excessive. I don't demand that. Mr. Goldstein, does the microphone need a good dusting? I wouldn't listen. I don't ask the interns. Shall I scrub out the toilet, Mr. Goldstein? You see, I'm not ashamed. I'm not proud. I mean, what are you afraid of? You afraid I'm too old? I'm no. still young and hot. I, 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 I know that. I, I know. I could be a great asset to your uh, broadcasting uh, corporation. I could do a lot. Okay, if you, you want... I'd make life easy for you. All right, you want, you want to actually have a serious conversation about this? So what, what, what do you know about running, running a radio show? You know, I've been around a long time. Don't forget, I've watched a lot of comedians... Buddy Hackett, Milton Berle, Red Buttons, and I, and I listen to all that. Yeah. Do you, do, you, do, you, do you even know how to set up a studio? You put chairs down. And uh, what else is there to know? What do you know about computers? I know that you, you, put a, you, you, you put your foot on a switch, you press the power. On a computer? On a, on a computer. Well, are, you, are you sure you're not thinking of like a sewing machine? So? Pieces of machinery. I drove a car all my life. That's a piece of machinery, right? You make it sound like I have to be here a, a, a computer nerd. So, you know, some of, some of what you'd be called upon to do would be sort of secretarial, like answering the telephone. Let's hear you answer the telephone. Okay. Let's say I'm trying to get, you know, I'm trying to get through to, to Jonathan Goldstein. Okay. Okay, I'm calling up. Hello? Hello? Yes, uh, I'd like to speak to Jonathan Goldstein, please. Well, right now, Jonathan is... Uh, Let's say I don't want to speak to this guy, yeah. Oh, you don't want this guy. Okay. Oh, I, I don't know whether he can be reached right now. He's been in the bathroom all day, and I don't know when he's going to be able to okay, get back. Dad, do you think that's professional, telling people that call up that I'm in the bathroom? These things happen. So you got the trots. So what? Okay, fine. So you're. let's say I need you to find do some research for me on a particular guest that I'm yeah. considering having on the show. How would you go about doing that? Okay. I wanted an expert on uh, semiotics. What the hell is that? Uh, let's say I wanted a, a, an expert on physics, a physics professor. Okay. All right. How would you How would you go about finding the right guy for me? Harvard. Mm-hmm. Department of Physics. Uh huh. Let's just try this out, okay, as an actual conversation. All right. Right. All right. So I'm picking up the telephone. I'm a busy uh, Harvard physics professor. Right. Hello. Hello. Is this uh, Dr. Jansen? Yes, this is Dr. Jansen speaking. The reason I'm calling is that uh, you're going to have the opportunity to be on a wonderful A1 radio show with a great host by the name of Jonathan Goldstein, who happens to be my son, by the way. Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a very busy man. It could mean and, and a lot because it would give you a lot of business. Sir, I, I don't run a fruit stand, okay? I'm, I'm a professor of physics at Harvard University. Now, now what, what is this radio show that you're talking about? The radio show is called... Um, what, what's the name of the it's, radio show? It's called show Wiretap, Dad. You know, this show, it seems as, a, as one of lightheartedness. But we need somebody who's serious, and the serious person is the egghead. And they are perfect. I'm not, I'm not looking to do vaudeville routines. Do you understand? And students would say, is that Professor Jansen? These guys are always thought you were some kind of a, a nerd. But they're going to see that Professor Jansen, there's more to him. Uh-huh. Plus, we'll send you a T-shirt. A wiretap T-shirt. Yeah, you sure that's the name of the show? It's Wiretap. Dad, why, why would you want to spend your golden years 
like this. You know what I mean? I mean, you've worked your entire life. What you know what I mean? What do you? We don't spend enough time together. You'd, you'd see me across the desk from you every day. I don't think you'd be sitting across... You remember across when the... you were a kid? We used to play chess. Checkers would bring, you know, kind of... Well, what are you suggesting? That I do, uh, I'm do? i doing a radio interview while I'm right. playing checkers with you? Why not? Okay, you know, Dad, I mean, if, it, if it's so important to you... I, why, you know, what the hell? Like, I mean, you know, you want you want to come in on Monday and we'll give it a try? Terrific. Yeah. And I got some wonderful ideas also. Yeah. You know, you, you got all these guys that, that you talk to and uh, like Howard and Greg. What do they have to offer? They're, I they're, can get you, you know, guys they're an important part of the show. I mean, but, people. Uh, I can, we can interview people that are useful. People that can teach how to build a shelf, how to paint a wall, how to fix a pipe. But that isn't the kind of show that. Like useful information. Yeah. Also, we're going to get you a good speech therapist. You know, you started too much. I, that, 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 that isn't... That, 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 you know, that... Eliminate that. We're going to get, we're going to get you the best speech therapist money can buy. How that? You can charge it to the CDC. Wiretap today, you heard Heather O'Neill reading her short story, The Little Wolf Boy of Northern Quebec. Heather is the author of Lullabies for Little Criminals. You also heard Steve Waltine and Buzz Goldstein. Wiretap is produced by Jonathan Goldstein with Mira Bertwintonic and Carolyn Warren. Tune into Wiretap Sunday at 1, 4 Pacific Time, and Wednesday evenings at 11.30. You can also hear Wiretap across North America on Sirius Satellite Radio 137. Reach us through our website at cbc.ca slash wiretap.